0: you one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday. Each week you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, human wildlife conflict. Your teacher is Professor Richard Kingsford from the Centre for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales. Good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon. I Richard. guess
0: everybody's got some moment in their life when they've been in very real conflict with an animal.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the first time I really came in conflict was a 12-year-old and a sort of keen zoologist from Kenya in Africa. And thinking you, I knew... You'd come from Kenya, hadn't yeah, you? Yeah, come, and knew, knew, thought I knew everything about ants, particularly savage siafu, as we were used to call them. And I picked up this bull ant. In Australia? In Australia. <laughs> and I paid the price because I didn't know ants could get you from both ends, and this one stung me in the thumb and, and, and also bit me. See, and I would was... have
0: thought the African bull ants would be worse than the Aussie.
1: <laughs> no. no? Anyway, at a more, more serious le- level, there's this whole global discipline of conservation science working on human-wildlife conflict. But even that sort of terminology, there's argument about that because people are saying it's actually the humans that are more in conflict rather than the animals being in conflict with us.
0: Mm. That's right. And it seems to be becoming more common, I suppose, simply as the animal kingdom
1: becomes under more pressure. We have more shared spaces, don't we? That's right. So we're interacting with them more. And and these these are animals that injure or kill us or they can be damaging or destroying our livelihoods or even infecting us. And and I mean, we know in Australia, we've got sharks, crocodiles, snakes, spiders and jellyfish that can kill us. But in other parts of the world, like Africa, um, people are killed by, you know, large herbivores like elephants and, and hippos and, and carnivores, obviously, as lions. And I remember as a kid being terrified when I read The Man Eaters of Tsavo with these two male lions that were progressively taking labourers out of the railway car- carriages and, and, and the person who actually shot them reckoned there were about 100 labourers who were killed by these two male lines. But just lions. Two, two, lines.
0: two lions? Two
1: lines In the 1890s? In the 1890s, yeah. yeah amazing.
0: Okay, um, but it, you know, we've got our own experiences, don't we? The sharks are the most obvious example. That's right.
1: And, and shark attacks do seem to be increasing, but the, the thinking is it's, it's mainly because there are more people in the water and, and possibly the currents are changing so that, you know, the sharks are moving. Um, but there's lots of other wildlife conflict issues, like our crops, um, big good food source for animals. And,
0: well, we've seen the mouse plague, haven't we? Yeah. Ac-
1: absolutely, taking off. And, and in the 1950s, uh, the CSIRO tried to grow rice up Hum-tidoo in in the Northern Territory, and the magpie geese said, thanks very much, and sort of basically completely destroyed the crop. Um, and I remember when I worked as a, a wildlife scientist for national parks um, in the late 1980s, I was sent <laughs> out to Broken Hill to fix a bird problem. And what had happened was there were about 6,000 corellas that had perched on the substation, electricity substation, and were essentially doing what parrots do, um, chewing on their beaks and they're chewing on the insulators. So about two or three times a day part of Broken Hill would Just lose all that electricity.
0: So I I imagine the locals wanted permission to go and shoot the birds. Well, that's
1: that's right. In fact, what had happened was there was a dairy feedlot there, and the farmer was getting a lot of pressure. and He said, "I need a license to kill six thousand corellas." So when I went out there, all his grain bins were overflowing. Parrots were sitting there as fat as mud, and they said, "Thanks very much." And so you know, we obviously recommended you you needed to fix it by essentially closing off those bins. So, so put a cover on the bin, that's, that's the answer, right. that's not shoot right. the birds. No, that's right. So a lot, of, a lot of this is as much about human behaviour as animal behaviour and, and how we actually do that.
0: And that's a great story, really. By putting a lid on the bins, it's not that costly to the humans and yet it solves the problem.
1: It solves the problem. You don't have to kill lots of animals. Um, that seems to be the way we go with it. And even, even for sharks along the east and west coast of Australia, the general... Scientific consensus is that the deployment of drum lines and nets are extremely expensive, kill thousands of non target animals and are not, and are not really commensurate with the risk that people are, are getting so but, but the things like not swimming on dusk and and trying to learn and understand what sharks actually mm-hmm. naturally do in these systems i mean we, we know that if we go to northern australia you don 't go swimming in a in a river because there 's a crocodile there, and you don 't go into the sea between November and May because you might get stung by a box jellyfish. So So
0: a piece of well-publicised advice about not swimming at dusk might do more to reduce shark fatalities than all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, drum systems.
1: Well, you you know, these are the things. I mean, one of the issues is we don't know quite enough about the shark behaviour, but sharks aren't generally going to try and eat a human. They tend to spit um, people out when they do damage them. So you know, they're not going for them for prey, So it's usually mistaken identity.
0: Created by, uh, you know, some, sometimes the, the light of dusk. We had a, a visit from a guy called Neil Jordan here on <laughs> Drive. Uh, he's such a, He's got a really great example, hasn't he, of exactly this sort of uh, open thinking about how you can reduce the conflict.
1: He's fantastic. So Neil works in, in our Centre for Ecosystem Science and also at Taronga Zoo. And he, he probably talked to you about that great idea he had about how do you, because he works in Botswana on the edge of the Okamango Delta, there, there are fences there, but it's it's pretty difficult to control lions. And so he had this great idea of painting eyes on the backs of, of cattle, backsides of cattle, because lions are ambush predators, so they're looking to see an animal that's not looking. And, and you know, the science shows that there are less, those animals with two Sets of eyes on either end were less likely to get eaten. Yeah, by Yeah, it's fantastic. Isn't it?
0: <laughs> Although I did put, I I think I put the question to him at the end of the interview: Will the lions learn? <laughs> and he right. said, I don't know. That's right. Yes, a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> but it works so far. I mean, it's a very novel idea, isn't it? Actually, using a bit of paint and it and it can uh, re- reduce the the threat to the to the cows and therefore the tension with the the locals. There's a similar thing being used in Zimbabwe with the lions.
1: Yeah, I think that's also really interesting. On the edge of that park. So a lot of these are massive parks with no fences. And so the lions there, they've got some of those edge lions with transmitters on, satellite transmitters on. And now they're sort of thinking, well, we can actually text a herder and say, look, about mm-hmm. 20 minutes away, you've got trouble so that they can corral their cattle. So I think they're really interesting ways that people are trying to get at this problem. And also, you know, the issue about African elephants, they're a big problem in parts of Africa is that they've got these migration routes, but but they do go and devastate crops and kill people. Um, but they someone... but how can you control an elephant that that's that's a yeah. problem isn't it not easily you don't stay and say don't come this way um even banging uh, people have long time banging cans and all that sort of thing but someone did realize that african bees i don't know if you know much about african bees but they're deadly when i was in africa we were terrified in fact we one of our horses got killed by a swarm of african bees they just basically stung it to death so they they're very um aggressive and, and elephants living with them for a long time know that, and they come in these big swarms. So someone had the bright idea of using beehives around crop plantations to keep the elephants off, and that seems to be working quite well. So like
0: an electric fence, yeah. you just sort of...
1: <laughs> with bees. <yeah>. Wow, okay. <laughs> uh, we're talking about the animal-human
0: conflict. I, I suppose the thing that's really in the news is things like COVID at the moment, because this, yeah. is, this is a product of the animal kingdom, which is killing us.
1: Yeah, the, the so-called zoonoses. So, you know, the coronaviruses... Um, like COVID-19, uh, essentially have crossed from animals to humans, and you know this is the the, the big danger. There there are others, of course. Um, Ebola, um, thought to again have come from bats to humans, like the COVID COVID-19 virus, um, and then of course you know there's HIV, another virus that obviously was a pandemic and spread that was thought to have been in chimpanzees as an SIV virus. And then because of bushmeat, West Africans ate some of those chim- chimpanzees. And then in about the 1920s, the thinking is it was in the human population and then started to spread from there. So, and and, and in, in Australia, we've also got the Hendra virus, which we know comes from fruit bats to horses and then can come to humans with deadly consequences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talk about sharks, we worry about snakes, we worry about spiders and even hippos and, and lions, but really there's no doubt the biggest killer of all are these viruses. And they,
0: again, are an example where things are becoming more difficult to control because we're
1: sharing so much space with them. Yeah, so this, this is one of the big issues that um, people really aren't talking that much about. But if unless we're able to share enough space with these animals in their natural environments they can be forced out of their natural environments they're also very stressed and we know that when you get when we get run down we're much more susceptible to virus attack and so you you're building a sort of real cocktail of of things that can go wrong and so you know one of the really important lessons here is that if we are going to have healthy people populations we have to have these healthy environments and that means either having lots of space and having areas that we know those wild animals can survive. And on top of that, maybe we need some buffer systems and we need to understand better what's going on.
0: There's moral reasons to share the planets with the animals, but there's also practical self-interest involved.
1: And also, obviously, health reasons. And as we know now from this pandemic, if you don't get the health right, you won't get the economy right either.
0: Yeah, another self-improvement Wednesday. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Richard. There you go. Professor Richard Kingsford from the Centre for Ecoscience, uh, Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales. You can listen again to his lesson online, abc.net.au slash Sydney. Uh, there you'll also find details of how to subscribe to the free Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast. Next week, Dr Eliza Middleton from the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney.